the darkness of unbelief. And um, they need our prayers. What a joy it is to have a little part of what's going on over there. And we're thankful for that. Um, we wanted to kind of finish up today. Several of you said we didn't get to ask very many questions last week when we had the Vox Pop program on Monday. That was a lot of fun, wasn't it? We really enjoyed doing that. And uh, uh, some of you had questions and several suggested that maybe today we could answer those questions. And so think about them for a minute while I talk at you for just a few seconds. <clears throat> and if you have a question you want to ask me about the Bible or, or whatever's on your heart about ministry, I want to take the time to do that. We should do this perhaps more often, but it's been a, a busy semester. And just a couple of things that I might say to you. First of all, I want to say thank you to you as a student body. You are a constant source of encouragement and joy to me, and I want you to know that. Whenever people come and visit the campus um, and articulate their response to me, invariably they tell me how they were really impressed with the, the attitude, the spirit, the generosity, the kindness, the thoughtfulness, etc. of the students. So. They must be running into the right students out there somewhere. And I'm really grateful, and I want to say how thankful I am for your attitude, for what you convey to people who visit our campus. We are really in the spotlight. Everybody's kind of got their eye fixed on us, and what in the world is the Lord doing here? And uh, we're kind of under their scrutiny, and I'm always so encouraged when people come and, uh, having visited the campus, come back to tell me how thrilled they were with the spirit of the young people, their love for the Lord, and uh, all of that's just so very, very important. You are really the Master's College, and everything that extends out of here to touch the lives of other people is going to be reinforced by the kind of spirit, attitude, commitment to Christ, ministry that you possess. And I'm very excited and grateful to God for what He's doing in your lives. I regret having been gone the last three or four weeks, but as the Lord would have it, I've been gone and I've missed being with you as, as often as I like to be, but uh, I know God's working in your life and I'm grateful for that. What I want you to do, if you have a question, just put your hand up and I'll just ask you to say it as loud as you can. Something on your heart about the Word of God, about ministry, something you want to know uh, from me that maybe I can help you with. Just don't be shy. In fact, if it's a question, you just say the guy sitting next to me has a question, but he doesn't have the courage to... Ask it. So I'm asking in his behalf. Um, you can get him in a lot of trouble that way, but uh, yes. Okay. He's asking the question, um, what is my evaluation of the self-esteem preoccupation, which is a sort of a new uh, psychological issue that's come to the fore? Uh, let me say that basically uh, the simplest way to understand that is this. The Christian has to maintain a balance between understanding his worth because he's created in the image of God and being humble because he's fallen. Very important to maintain that balance. I'm afraid that people into the self-esteem kind of thing don't have that balance. I, I feel that what's happening in the psychology of self-esteem is not that people are wanting to understand their worth in the image of God, but rather they're wanting to feel okay about themselves in their fallenness. There's a big difference. You understand what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's important that all of us understand we're created in the image of God and that we are worth something. In fact, we're worth so much that Jesus Christ is willing to give his life on our behalf. We are valuable to God. But our value to God is related to his ability to overcome our fallenness. Our value to God is not related to the fact that our fallenness isn't any big deal. Uh, in the self-esteem psychology, or the self-esteem cult, as I like to think of it, you have a lot of people who are wanting to feel good about their sin. 
wanting to feel good about their fallenness. Uh, wanting to feel good about the way they treat other people which they shouldn't feel good about. Wanting to feel a relief from guilt that they ought to have. Wanting to sort of shove off shame for things that ought not to be in their life. It's really, it amounts to little more than playing games with your mind. I remember a guy told me one time he went to a seminar. It was a success seminar. And he paid $1,500 to go to it. And the first day they were there, they gave him a coin, a big coin about the size of a silver dollar, and it had a kind of rough imagery on it. I don't even remember what the pictures were on it, but it was rough so you could feel it with your fingers. And they said, in order to be successful, here's what you do. You put that coin in your pocket and you keep it in your pocket continuously. Never let it out of your pocket. And every time you reach in your pocket, you touch that coin, you rub your fingers over that coin, and that's to jog your memory. And so for the first day after they got the coin, they memorized statements about themselves. Statements which every time they touched the coin, they were to remember to say. For example, I'm wonderful. I'm, I'm far superior to most people that I know. I'm successful. People don't understand how really successful I am. And you had about five or six of these incredible statements you made about yourself and you put the thing in your pocket and every time you touched it you recited those things over to yourself and eventually you would create this massive ego. You know, you were playing a game with yourself. The truth of the matter is you ought to have a coin in your pocket. Every time you touch it you say, I'm wretched. <laughs> I am fallen. I am, I am humbled by my sinfulness. See, there's a real balance. I know my self-worth. You know you're worth something, don't you? I mean, God didn't make any mistakes. Next time you look in the mirror, just remember that. God didn't make any mistakes. I mean, we all have those things that we wish were different about ourselves. But you're what God made you, minus your sin, and He has placed value on you. But that value is related to what He can do in your life, not related to what you are in your sin. And that's the balance I think you have to keep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, did you hear that question? I heard that there's a potential scandal uh, involving the school under its former name. Am I aware of that? Um, folks, when, wherever I'm around, there's always a potential <laughs> or something like that. Uh, let, me, let me explain it to you. Uh, recently, as of March 23rd, last month, the chairman of our board, Mr. Jerry Smith, who has been the chairman of the board of trustees or the board of directors of the college for 20 years. Now, you understand that every college has a board of trustees. Uh, they have the responsibility, really it's a fiduciary responsibility, it's a financial responsibility to hold the institution accountable. Uh, but then they give some leadership to the institution. So over 20 years, Jerry Smith has been on the board along with many other men. Um, it has come to light recently that uh, Mr. Smith has been indicted by a grand jury regarding some very complex and bizarre financial situations relative to banks and savings and loans up in the Northwest. Uh, at this particular point, he and those people who are around him affirm his innocence. But sometimes when a person gets a large conglomerate of companies and so forth, they have people who are operating those companies who can operate outside the realm of accountability and integrity. And so what we have been told is that these people embezzled money in the companies, but the people who were embezzled basically want their pound of flesh, and so they've gone right through the company back to Mr. Smith. In order to protect the college from any involvement at all, he resigned prior to this indictment. So at this particular point, he is not a part of 
of the College Board at all. It furthermore needs to be stated that the College has absolutely no financial relationship, involvement, or connection with him or any of his businesses whatsoever. So from that standpoint, I don't think there's anything to be concerned about. You know, uh, there's nothing involving the College, nothing involving any institution that we have any connection with. It's just something that he's going to have to go through, and I guess it'll probably take a year. And uh, as, as Bob Provost always says, time and truth go hand in hand, and time and truth will go hand in hand, and w the courts will, will adjudicate and determine uh, whether or not there has been any wrong done in this situation. I would just encourage you, because uh, I think it's important for us to pray for Mr. Smith. He feels devastated by this. You can imagine pick up the paper and read your, you've been indicted and he's a leading Christian layman in his church and, and was defrauded he says by the people in his companies and now they're coming after him and it's a very difficult thing for him to handle but in order to protect the college he stepped away there's no connection with the present college and administration and board with any of the issues at hand so I don't see any anything that will come from it okay glad you asked does that help some of you that might have had that question yeah mm -hmm. The question he's asking is, why is in 1 Timothy 4.14 it say, I will that the younger women marry, bear children, keep house? And in 1 Corinthians 7.40 it says, it'd be better off if you stayed single. What you have to do in 1 Corinthians 7.40 is go back to uh, the earlier part of the chapter. I'll show you a verse, I think it's within the first dozen verses. Um, verse 8 and 9. I say, therefore, to the unmarried, and unmarried is a term, a technical term used in 1 Corinthians 7 to, to speak of people who are divorced. Okay? So I say to those of you who have been divorced or widows, it's good for them if they abide even as I. And what state was Paul in? He was single. Probably his wife had what? Probably died. It's unlikely that he would have been elected a member of the Sanhedrin if he hadn't been married. Since he claims no wife, it's also likely that uh, she had died. That's somewhat speculative, but seems to be reasonable. Now, verse 9, but if they cannot have self-control, let them marry. For it's better, better to marry than to burn. Now, the burning here isn't talking about hell. It doesn't mean if you don't get married, you'll go to hell. Um, no, it's, it's, you're all right. You're all right. Uh, um, what it means is it's better to get married if you can't control your desire. It's better to marry than to go around burning with desire all the time saying, I'm going to stay single for the glory of God. Yeah, you know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's no point in living like that. See, God has made some people for marriage, and some people he has designed with what we could call a gift for singleness. They don't need to be married. They're not incomplete in that sense. They don't have, they, they are not abnormal. It's not to say that they're abnormal. It's just that they're the way God made them, and they're self-contained in that sense. They don't need another person to complement their life. And so I believe what he is saying in the normality of things in 1 Timothy 4.14 is that it is best for younger widows to remarry because having been married once, they give evidence of not having the gift of singleness. It's better for them to marry. In 1 Corinthians 7, he says, however, if you can stay single, stay single. But if it's a problem for you, get married because nobody needs single people running around, you know, having hot flashes or whatever it is. I mean, that's not going to be to the glory of God. So uh, it's a question of how God has equipped you, okay? But from the practical standpoint, from the practical standpoint, Paul says if, if you can stay single, 
You're not going to be burdened with the cares of the world. You're not going to have to worry about the partner. You're going to be free with your time. Singleness can be a tremendous spiritual asset. Now, I'm a happily married person, and I cannot be a single person. So you'll understand what I say when I say, I also know that if I were single and God had given me the gift of singleness, I would have a life that would have been greatly unencumbered. I understand that. Now, I accept the encumbering God has given me because that's his plan for my life. But anybody who's married knows what it is to have a wife, a house, four kids, a dog, a cat, and all the stuff, you know. And it, no question that takes a lot of time and involvement. Whereas if God gives you the gift of singleness, there is a tremendous freedom in what you can do. But that's only if God has given you the gift to handle that. Okay? Yes, Paul? Yeah. No, that, that, you would say that's almost a traditional um, sort of post-millennial viewpoint. Paul's asking the question about uh, when we evangelize, are we bringing in the kingdom? If you mean in a general sense that, that we're going to usher in the earthly reign of Jesus Christ, that's a post-millennial viewpoint. That, by the way, is being fanned right now under the teaching of guys like Rush Dooney and Bonson and North, and you may have heard those names. That's a, that's a traditional post-millennial view. And what it says is that the world is getting better and better. The church is growing stronger and stronger. And eventually we will be so strong, we'll just give Jesus the kingdom. Frankly, that whole viewpoint died at, at World War I. And it was buried at World War II. And how in the world anybody ever resurrected it now, I find difficult to understand. But there is a sense... There is a sense in which when we lead someone to Christ, they become a citizen of the kingdom. And so we advance the kingdom. But I would rather talk about advancing the kingdom in the hearts of men than bringing in the kingdom because I don't think that the coming of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ on the earth has anything to do with some kind of aggressive explosion of the church which literally brings us into a kingdom state and Christ just steps in and takes over. I believe the kingdom comes when the world has gotten so bad that Jesus has to come in, in judgment. And that, I think, is clearly indicated in what the scriptures teach. Okay? Yes. Steve? No, what's your name? John. I'm sorry, John. I'm trying to remember. That's right. Yeah, he's asking the question that's often asked about how it is that when, when um, God said he was going to do something and somebody prayed, God changed his mind. Um, and then how do you reconcile with that, that with the concept that God is unchanging, that God doesn't need to change his mind because he never decides to do anything that he later wouldn't do? Um, the answer is this. This is what you call in theology an anthropomorphism. That's a long word. It comes from two Greek words, anthropos and morphe. Morphe means body, anthropos means man. And what that says is that God, in communicating God to us, it has to, God, because God is infinite, in order for us to understand God, he has to be put in human terms. That is in the anthroposmorphate. That is in terms that, the, that are related to the body of a man. For example, the Bible says that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth. God doesn't have any eyes, but we understand that means he's aware of what's happening. The arm of the Lord is not shortened. God is a spirit. He doesn't have an arm. My ear is not deaf that I cannot hear. He doesn't have ears either. So... Um, when the Bible talks about God, uh, for example, you see in uh, Jeremiah 13 where God appears to be weeping. He doesn't have eyes, he doesn't have cheeks, he doesn't have tears. But those, are, again, are anthropomorphic ways to describe God, and that's the only way we can understand him. I mean, if the Bible said God did a gleek on a glip, we don't understand that. So it has to be brought down 
packaged for us at a level we can comprehend. Now, we understand what it means for God to say this is going to happen. And then when circumstances come in and somebody pleads, you remember the pleading, uh, you know, if, you, if there are only 10 faithful people, will you spare the city and so forth? Um, God says, OK, you remember the statement where God made uh, the statement that uh, he said, uh, it, I repent that I made man. Okay, those are ways in which we are told that God is altering his original plan. And again, I don't think that we want to conclude that God is up there whimsically vacillating back and forth. But those things are communicated to us in terms which we as men can understand. That's the best way to understand that, uh, that God is reduced to, to human terms. For example, in the Psalms, it says that... Uh, that God uh, covers us with his feathers and underneath uh, the everlasting arms and so forth. And some people have concluded that God is a chicken or a bird or a duck or something. Uh, but again, God is reduced to human terminology. So to understand that, John, what you want to understand is that whenever it appears to us that God is acting like a man might act, it is in order to convey to us something that we otherwise would not be able to understand. And if it were left in purely infinite and divine terms, we probably couldn't grasp them, so it's reduced. Now, let me give you a second thought. There are times when God says he will do something, but when conditions are met, God will alter that. For example, when people are born into this world, where are they headed? To hell, right? We're all the children of wrath, Ephesians. We're all bound for judgment. We're all headed for hell. We're all controlled by the prince of the power of the air. We're all ruled by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We are all bound for eternal perdition without God. But there are conditions by which that is altered. Right? Faith in Jesus Christ. So, again, there are times when God says, I will do this. But when men meet the conditions His holiness demands, that is altered. And that fits within His sovereignty. Okay? No, it's not wrong. Not wrong to do that. In fact, we want to we want to perceive of God as a person, and the only way we can perceive person a person is in the form that we understand a person to be. The psalmist did that. The psalmist speaks of the emotions of God. God shall laugh them to scorn. And as I said in Jeremiah 13, where Jeremiah, acting in behalf of God, says, "And if you don't turn, mine eyes shall run down with tears." And he's really, in a sense. Shedding the tears of God. Jesus, who is the ultimate incarnation of God, wept. And he manifests the character of God. If God had a body, God would cry. And God had a body and God cried. Well, let me ask, she said, is it idolatry to view God as a human figure? I do not view God as a human figure. When I think of God, I think of G-O-D. I just think of big letters. That's, that's all I think of. I don't want to. I don't want to reduce God to a, a guy in a white robe with a long beard. I don't like that. And I so I resist the temptation to form in my mind any image of God. But and I would encourage you to do the same. You don't want to reduce God to some some limitation in your mind. In fact, very often I think of God in terms of infinite space. Now I can't think of infinite space. In full understanding, but I can think of infinite space in a limited way, you know. So I just think of God as vast. Vast. I see those big letters and just this, I think of endless space. The vastness of God. 
I would rather do that than to conceive of God as reduced to some physical form because I believe it's very clear in Scripture that no man has seen God at any time and no man will see God. If anyone saw God in Exodus, it tells us very clearly, no man shall see my face and live. The very fullness of the essence of the blazing glory of God would consume any created, created being, even an angelic one. So we will never see God in all eternity. We will see Christ. I don't think we'll see God. I think we'll see that which emanates from God in terms of whatever amount of glory we can stand. But I don't think we'll see the full blazing glory of God. Therefore, God could never be reduced to any kind of image. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Kurt is asking the question, what is the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God? And the answer, Kurt, is there is no difference. And it can be demonstrated, I think, rather readily from this uh, one particular point in Matthew where those terms are used interchangeably. In Matthew 19.23, Jesus said to his disciples, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall with difficulty enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That's the most telling text in the whole New Testament for affirming that those are one and the same. Even the traditional old dispensationalist Schofield Bible view that the kingdom of heaven is one thing, the kingdom of God is something else, is pretty well being scuttled because that text alone is convincing. Kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are the same thing. You say, what's the difference? One emphasizes the sphere, it is heavenly. The other emphasizes the authority, who is God. The kingdom of God is a kingdom in which God rules in a heavenly sphere. Okay? Good question. Yes. John 20, 28. Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Well... I mean, I think that's one of the clearest, most precise declarations of the deity of Jesus Christ given anywhere on the pages of Holy Scripture. I don't think you have to look very far to find the deity of Christ articulated in the New Testament. I even think you can find it in the Old Testament, in some of the Psalms, like Psalm 2 and elsewhere. But I, I see here, Thomas, you remember the situation, don't you? Thomas said, I'm not going to believe until I see, until I touch, and all of that, uh, about the resurrection. And in verse 27, Jesus said, uh, reach your finger over here and behold my hands and reach your hand and thrust it into my side and be not doubting or faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God, I don't even think Thomas reached out and touched. I don't think he even needed to do that. I think when he saw Christ, he was convinced. Is that what you wanted to know? Yeah. No, no, that's good. I think in terms of Jesus, I do visualize a person because God revealed himself in human form. And I, th I see what you're driving at. Yeah, he saw Jesus as a man, but knew that he was not just a man, but he was the God man. And it's not wrong, certainly not wrong to have in your mind that kind of image of Jesus. In fact, I don't, I don't particularly like pictures of Jesus. I don't have, I don't have in my home or in my, my little world any pictures of Jesus and the reason I don't is because I don't want to be wrong but they don't offend me you know I mean when, when our kids were growing up we read little storybooks and they have pictures of Jesus and and some beautiful paintings have rendered the, the presence of Christ uh, the other night we were over at the uh, hall of the crucifixion and there were a couple of magnificent I mean breathtaking paintings of Christ those do not offend me um, because I believe Jesus gave us the right to perceive God incarnate as a person a human form so 
Well, I don't necessarily think it's wrong to have them. I, I don't like the idea that you would take a picture of Jesus and hang it up. That wouldn't be that would be a bit offensive to me and treat it as if it was something sacred in and of itself. Because it's a guess. We really don't know what Jesus looked like. But it is not wrong to perceive of him in human form, because that's the form he was in. He's asking about the end of the Revelation where um, in verse uh, is it, what, 18 and 19, chapter 22, um, it, it, there's a, a real curse pronounced there on anyone who takes away or adds to. I testify to every man that hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God will add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. A lot of people debate how, what does that apply to, just adding to Revelation or adding to any other book. The best answer to that is it applies to adding to Revelation. And since Revelation was the last book written in the New Testament, adding to Revelation would be adding to the Scripture. So that the plague applies to anyone who adds to any part of the Scripture. Deuteronomy, by the way, says almost the same thing. And if any man takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and out of the holy city and the things that are written in this book. Now the question comes, does this mean that this is a Christian who adds to the Bible and then loses his salvation? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, I don't think that's it. Because that would be at the final juncture of Scripture to introduce a doctrine that would be contrary to everything else. You know, the, the Reformed theologians, the great Reformers, used to have a, a, a Latin statement that you need to remember somewhere in your theological file called Analogia Scriptura. That is to say, the Scripture is analogous to itself. It will nowhere contradict itself. So when you come across a passage which seems to say something contradictory, you know that it's because you don't understand fully what it's saying and you must relate it to everything else. So I believe what he's saying there is simply this. The person who adds to Scripture will have no place in eternal life. The person who and, and the implication here is adding to the Scripture in the sense that diminishes the truth of the Word of God. Adding to the Scripture in the sense that um, adulterates the truth of the Word of God. And anyone who does that has no part in the tree of life, no part in the eternal city, no part in the kingdom. Yes. Uh-huh. Hebrews 6. You might want to turn. That's a very important portion of Scripture. Now, unfortunately, in order to explain this one, you, you really need to cover a lot of ground. Uh, but let me just give you a, a basic introduction, okay? It's important to note in the book of Hebrews who the book is written to, okay? It is very essential to understand that here you have a writer unknown to us. We do not know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Some say Paul. However, there are studies of the vocabulary, particularly I'm thinking of one by S. Lewis Johnson on the use of the Old Testament in the book of Hebrews that really belies the idea that, that Paul wrote it. Others think Apollos wrote it, but that's speculation. Some have gone so far as to say that uh, Peter may have written it. I, again, I don't necessarily agree with that. I would stand with Origen and others who said only God knows. But we do know this. We don't know who wrote it, but we know who he wrote it to. He wrote it to Jews. Now, these Jews fell into several categories. First of all, there were Jewish believers in a community of somewhere. We don't know where the community is either. Jewish believers who affirmed the gospel of Christ and had come out from their community, come out from their, their religion to Christianity. Secondly, there are a group of fence-sitters. That is, Jews who are intellectually convinced that the gospel is true but won't make the commitment. Do you know people like that? A lot of people like that. 
They know it's true, but the cost is too high. In the first place, they will be unsynagogued, which would be you know, disassociated from their heritage, excommunicated from their people. So they're sitting on the fence. And as you go through the epistle of the Hebrews, and I did a, a paper on that very issue in seminary for Dr. Feinberg because of my concern that you can't understand the parts if you don't understand the whole. And so the introduction to it is important. But what you have here then is this group of Jewish Christians who are exhorted and instructed here. And then periodically the writer hits these fence-sitting Jews who intellectually know the truth but won't make the commitment. For example, in chapter 2 he says to them, how shall you escape if you neglect so great salvation? which was already shown to you and confirmed in signs and wonders and mighty deeds through the Holy Spirit. How can you escape if you neglect? In chapter 10, he says to that same fence-sitting group, of how much sore or punishment shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the blood of the covenant counted an unholy thing. In other words, if you keep trampling under your feet the blood of Christ, you know it's true, you, you understand the gospel, but you walk on it by your unbelief, you're going to have a more severe punishment. Periodically, he does this. Chapter 4, he says, please enter into rest. Please come all the way to the gospel. Come all the way to Christ. Don't fall backwards. Come along. In other words, he says, don't fail of the grace of God. You're so close. And I believe that that is the context of this section. It starts in chapter 5, verse 11. Of, many we have, uh, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be entered. You are dull of your hearing, he says. And then verse 12, when for the time you ought to be teachers, you know so much you ought to be teaching this stuff, you have need for someone to go back and teach you again all the basics. And I believe there he's talking to fence-sitting, unconverted Jews who are intellectually convinced but won't come to Christ. Now that's a contextual foundation. Pulling that into chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Messiah. We've got to get off the Old Testament, is what he's saying. We've got to get out of just that basic sort of primitive messianic understanding. Let's go on to perfection. Perfection is a word used in Hebrews to refer to salvation. Just as it's used in Matthew 5.48. He says, we want you to go on to salvation. And not lay down again, and here are terms related to Judaism, a foundation of repentance from dead works, a general statement of faith toward God, of the doctrine of, and some Bibles translate baptisms, that's the only time in the whole New Testament that word was ever translated baptism, and it's confusing, it means washings, ceremonial Old Testament washings. And laying on of hands, which every Jew did when he laid his sacrifice on the altar, and a general belief in resurrection and eternal judgment. In other words, those are the basics of the Old Testament, but we've got to move on from that. And of course, in verse 3, it says, if God allows us, that's exactly what we'll do. Then you come to verse 4 very quickly. And here's the reason he encourages them to come on to salvation. Because he says it's impossible. For those who were once enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again to repentance. Now, that's the crux. What does he mean? In the first place, he says it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Some people say this teaches you can lose your salvation. If it does, it also teaches that it's impossible to what? To get it back. So if you lose your salvation, if you can lose your salvation according to this passage, you're damned forever. That's not what it's saying. Look at these terms. Enlightened, what does that mean? What does enlightened convey to you? What does it convey? Yeah, head knowledge. You became aware of something. Tasted the heavenly gift. 
tasted. Uh, Jeremiah said, Thy words were found, and I did eat them. And thy word was in me, the joy and rejoicing in my heart. Jeremiah 15, 16. Here is a tasting, not necessarily an eating. And they were made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Partakers of the Holy Spirit in what, what way? Back to Hebrews chapter 2 where he says, You have seen the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And you tasted the good word of God. You got a taste of, of the truth that was articulated by the apostles. And you saw the powers of the age to come, the miracle powers, the healings and so forth. I think what you have here is a person exposed to the revelation of the gospel at a miraculous level. Their mind is enlightened. They understand. They have tasted the power of Christ. Maybe they even ate bread and fish. That would be to really taste it. That was created by Jesus. They were partakers of the Holy Spirit in what sense? Who did the ministry through Christ and who did the ministry through the apostles? Who energized them all? The Holy Spirit. They tasted the good word of God. They got a smattering of truth and the powers of the age to come, the miracle powers. They saw all of that. Here's the key thing. None of those terms is ever used anywhere in the New Testament to refer to salvation. And that's the telling argument. Not one of those terms is ever used any place to refer to salvation. It doesn't say, and you who were regenerate, you who were born again, you who were redeemed, you who were justified. No term like that is used. You who believed, it doesn't say that. You who trusted, it doesn't say that. You who hoped in Christ, it doesn't say that. It uses terminology that is never anywhere used in the New Testament to refer to salvation. So the result of that to me is that it therefore is not talking about salvation. It's talking about a person who has received the revelation, seen the miracles, maybe even been in on one of them there. Somebody they knew got healed. Maybe they got healed, heard the word of God, understood the gospel. And then he says, if you fall away, in other words, if you have reached the pinnacle of revelation and you don't believe you can't get any more revelation. So if you fall away from that, you could never be renewed again to repentance because if with all that revelation you rejected, you crucify the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. I mean, if a person with full revelation doesn't believe, he can't be saved. So if you fall away having had full revelation, there's nowhere to go from there. That's the point. And that's why he says in verse 9 when he turns the corner but beloved we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation and he turns the corner to talk to the true believers okay uh, she asked the question for a new christian what is the best book to start with for spiritual growth um, you know i would encourage this for a new christian i would encourage a new christian to read the psalms and the proverbs out of the old testament because they present the character of god and we want to know who our God is, right? When I discipled men for years, I'd take them through Proverbs, Psalms and Proverbs. In fact, there are 31 chapters in Proverbs, one for every day of the month. And you could just keep spending the rest of your life reading that next chapter every day. What's the date today? 20th, read the 20th chapter of Proverbs today. And, and read through the Psalms. In the New Testament, I believe without question, the place to start is in the Gospels. Just start at Matthew and read through to John. And when you're done, go back and start all over again. You will expose yourself to the life of Christ. In the Old Testament, the nature of God. In the New Testament, the character of Christ. That's where a Christian, new Christian ought to begin. Good question. Mm-hmm. Well, now, where are you saying that it says he, he went into heaven? Okay. 
doesn't say anything about his blood in verse 11. Uh-huh. Let me, let, me, let me answer your question. What does it say in verse 12? Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but... What's the preposition? What's the preposition? By. Does it say with? It says by. Very important. He didn't enter heaven with his blood. He entered heaven by his blood. And what it means is by means of his death, he entered at once into the holy place. There is no place on the pages of scripture that ever says Jesus took his blood to heaven. He never is said to have entered heaven with his blood. He entered into heaven having accomplished our redemption by his blood. Big difference. Because of. That's the idea. Okay, one more question. When you were saved, that was a great day. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. He's, what's your name? Glenn, Glenn said uh, when he was saved, it wasn't until six months later that he let the Lord become Lord of his life. Yeah, let me tell you something, Glenn. When you were saved, he was Lord. You didn't let him be Lord. He was Lord. You didn't say, Lord, now you, you, you can be Savior, but hang on there. I'm not ready to give you the rest. No. See, you don't tell him who he is, right? When you got him, you got him. And he came in in charge. It just took six months for you to be obedient. Big difference. You got that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I think our time is up, and we'll uh, maybe do this another time. Good time. Good questions. God bless you all. Let me just share a couple of things. The year's over, and I want you to know how you've enriched my life and how thankful I am for all of you. And I'm so excited, looking forward to next year to see what God's going to do. It's just going to be tremendous. And I just want to encourage you just in a few little things. Um, when you go home this summer, let me encourage you to be faithful in your church, okay? I think your pastors are going to expect that you're going to come back with a different perspective related to the church. I mean, they, they know you've been here, and they know you've been excited and involved in a growing spiritual dynamic environment, and you need to go back and be there on the front row or the second row, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, Bible in hand, excited, support that man that gets up and teaches God's Word. Don't go back with a typical freshman syndrome, well, I know it all, now I want to gather the board and straighten out the church. You know, uh, they don't need that. They really don't need that. You just go back and love them to death and just have the Spirit of God work in your life, but be faithful. Be there every time the doors are open, right? And be there ready to be a part. And Sunday morning, Sunday night, if you have a midweek service, plug in, get in your youth group, and, and, and the Lord will honor that. You know, cultivate that habit of faithfulness. I know some of you even here uh, slept in on Sundays from time to time. I can't imagine, God forbid, that such a thing should ever happen. But uh, occasionally I have come to realize that it does. Uh, learn to cultivate good habits of getting there and worshiping God in a faithful way. And let the summer be a time when you can kind of set the example in your family and in your church. And another thing I would say to you is learn to discipline and make productive use out of your time. The tendency is you walk away from here and you say, man, I'm going to just flake. And, uh, and you undo the disciplines that the Lord has been using during the time you're here. Make productive use of your time. You're no less responsible for your time when you're not here than you are when you're here. And the test of character is not what you do when everybody's on top, but what you do when nobody's there. So use the time, the precious commodity. If there's anything, if I could have one wish, God could give me anything, I would say, God, just give me another eight hours a day.
more time. So much to do. Make productive use of your time. It's the most precious thing. And do your best. Hey, you're coming down to the wire, right? Three weeks then, the glories of finals. Yeah. Produce. Put your nose to the grindstone. Do excellently as unto the Lord everything you do. Okay? Do your best. And you want to offer up to the Lord a sacrifice that pleases Him. And then one other thing. Come back. Finish what you started. Okay? We want you. We need you. You're vital. And we want to build on your life the new students. And you're the key to that. This is a world that just has people running sporadically in 900 directions and they never, they never finish what they start. Finish. Be the only person on your block who finished something in a helter-skelter world. Be faithful and, and come back and stick with it. And if God brought you here, He wants you here. And one other thing in these last few weeks, support one another, will you? Love one another. Encourage one another. You see somebody struggling, come alongside. Help each other when you study together. Pray with each other. Encourage each other. Build those strong relationships. And be all you ought to be to each other. And God will honor you for that. Let's stand for a word of prayer.